Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm very pleased to have not only a special guest, but also someone who has not been on the podcast yet. So I'm glad we could finally get together for that. Welcome, Glenn Kenny. Hello, I'm so happy to be here on the Lido in Venice and speaking with you. It's a beautiful day here. <laughs> this is my sixth time at the Venice Film Festival. I feel so blessed and grateful for that. And I've, I've finally figured out how to take full advantage of the Conad supermarket <laughs> on the Santa Elisabetta, which is a very weird place because it's, if you look at it from the outside, you don't see it's a supermarket. It looks like a woman's clothing store, but the supermarket is, is the blueprint is such that the supermarket is nestled on the interior of the first floor of the clothing store. You have to really kind of look for it. And then it's like, oh, it's a whole supermarket. <laughs> I was not aware of that. I'll have to take oh, that Oh, it's tip, fantastic. Tip I, yeah, this is where I got my extra special <laughs> large size light taste Coca-Cola <laughs> that I'm drinking now, which is what they call uh, Diet Coke in Europe. Essential, uh, essential for the festival goer. So obviously, you know, you write regularly for the New York Times. I do write reviews for the Times, and I'm covering this for RogerEbert.com, but I'm essentially a guest of the festival because I'm part of a panel that looks at the BNLA College movies every year, and we'll talk about those yes. later on. I think it's important to discuss them, though, because they need they need more attention, I think. Yeah, and I think this, this is a especially strong year. But I thought we could just sort of dive into things. I mean, basically, you know, we have a lot of front-loaded big movies um, in, in, in the lineup, including, you know, Spencer and Dune, Power the Dog as an opening film. Um, and, you know, then there's a healthy section of alternative um, films in the Horizon section, plus much out of competition. Uh, including Halloween Kills and The Last Duel, a Ridley Scott film that I, I'm not going to be able to see. Nor am I. Yeah. But yeah, various other things. Well, you know, it's the movies are great, uh, and, and it's great to see them. It's great to be back here. It's really a very, uh, you mm. know, for an American traveling in Europe, it's a very fraught atmosphere. Getting onto a plane is uh, much more involved than it normally used to be. I mean, you know, we're behaving as if we're in a post-pandemic world and we're not even close to a post-pandemic world, but we're trying. We're putting our, we're all putting our best feet forward, so to speak. And I think the festival is doing likewise, very much so. But, you know, there are definite changes. For instance, something I've always loved at the festival has been the classic selection, which highlights uh, restored films. I, uh, I will often see my friend Dave Kerr from the Museum of Modern Art coming and bringing something very special with him. He's not here this year because I think in part because there is no classic section because this is an inference. I haven't quite confirmed this, but since we're only seating at 50% capacity at every screening, uh, the festival needs to book more screenings of the main sections of the film in order to accommodate all the um, accredited people and ticket buyers, of which there are now more than there were last year when no Americans could come to the festival. But, you know, so far the films uh, have been very good. There's not been a stinker in the bunch. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. well, the, the surprise, you know, because I've issued foul imprecations against Denis Villeneuve <laughs> in the past you're, you're, um, not, you're not alone that seems to be a sport lately yeah and i saw dune and i very much enjoyed it uh i think it's a good when you say good for what it is that sounds kind of condescending but good for what it is is kind of 
crucial to what this film will be able to achieve because what it is is a very specific thing that is a cultural trope by this point, which is the big budget spectacular science fiction movie. And, and not only that, the launch of, yeah. of that, because they yeah. prominently say part one. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't think I would, I, I went in not thinking that I would say this, but I hope he makes part two, because I liked part one. It's, he said he only filmed a half of the book. I read the book prior to coming out here, and I'm not sure what compelled me to do that. I'm in my early 60s. I remember in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, that Dune and Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land were the big sci-fi counterculture books, and, and that The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings were the big fantasy counterculture books. And it's weird that these emblems of the counterculture have become these commodified corporate products in the film industry. Why does that happen? It's a whole other subject. But, you know, the first adaptation of Lord of the Rings was by Ralph Bakshi, an underground cartoon guy, right. you know, right? Uh, working, I think, with Rankin Bass, or that might have been a separate... Th- anyway. Yeah. Well, when I read the book, and I liked the book, I understood why it became popular, but it's a very radical vision. It's incredibly anti-corporate. It's, it's very... It loves Islam, or its, its version of Islam, and uh, it's a it's an eco fable, you know, and you know, but every now and then the corporate culture will get a wild hair up at something, and decide that they need to make this into a bigger thing, even though what it actually stands for is against everything the corporation might stand for. Hmm. But um, you know, that was why it was such a counterculture hit. And yeah. you know, during the time I was reading it, I realized I. A lot of the things that people laughed about in Lynch's film, like the interior monologues and the uh, I like this Duke uh, business, <laughs> that's actually in the book. That's actually how it works in the book, these italicized sections where people think, I like this Duke. So, you know, <laughs> he couldn't be faulted for that. But Lynch has no feel for, you know, the geopolitical or for social commentary. And that's a huge part of what this book is. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lynch's film, which I still admire, can be seen as a Lynchian dreamscape from outside source that was heavily compromised during its editing, at least. And this film is the first two-thirds of Dune. I mean, the the thing about Dune is that aside from the eco-allegory and the critique of capitalism and global corporate practices and stuff there are a lot of sequences that are just old-fashioned serial style suspense set pieces and Villeneuve visualizes these as well as you can imagine they work they work really really well my suspicion and this is something I wrote in my review for ebert.com is that he admires the book so much that he felt not inclined to impose any of his own ideas on it right because yeah. the book's ideas correspond well enough to his own that he just sort of let it be and that's all to the good yeah so w- when you say you know these kind of uh serial scenarios i i guess you're talking about these they're almost nostalgic kind of action pieces the kind of the rescues the rescues know. the the letting the chopper get in the storm before pulling it out uh, right that sort of stuff is it's really well done the the hand in the box, um, uh-huh. all that sort of stuff is really well done. The escape from the the palace, the abduction from the palace. He nails them all. And he fills the movie with these allusions to other, what I would say, high cinema spectacles. There's 
quotes from Apocalypse Now. Of course, Lawrence of Arabia is in there. There's even stuff from Red Desert and The Man Who Knew Too Much, the Hitchcock color man who knew too much. Oh, well, tell me about the servant When the servant dies and puts her hand out and leaves the blood stain on Uh the robe. I mean, and and Red Desert, when that burst of yellow comes through and and when Zendaya shows up in one of the dream sequences. So, you know, and it doesn't detract from what the scenario is doing. And it does sort of make the case for when Villeneuve said when he was complaining about the film debuting on HBO Max, he says this is a this is a film as a tribute to big screen films. I was like, who make why make a film just to do that? But I see what he meant now Mm -hmm. and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of hilarious when Stellan Skarsgård shows up and he's bald as an egg and he runs his hand over his wet head and you're right. like, oh, there you go. Yeah, and then um, later on he emerges from a liquid yeah, just yeah. again from... So some might find that distracting or just <laughs> dumb. I kind of got a kick out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's great to see at La Sala Grande. The Sala Grande is a big theater here on the Lido that reminds me of the Ziegfeld, mm-hmm. a much yeah. lamented past... Yes, uh, movie house in New York that uh, where you would uh, where I saw Apocalypse Now for the first time. Yeah, where I saw restored versions of Lawrence of Arabia. Me too. And uh, Vertigo, where I smoked a joint and watched Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Everything's momentous mm-hmm, if it shows mm-hmm. on that screen. So this looked momentous. Yeah, and I. I, I went with it. Maybe I'm intoxicated by the atmosphere here, but I, <laughs> no one is more surprised than I am by how much I, lo- I enjoyed this picture. Um, I just realized did, I, I'm not. I'm. We're sort of assuming that everyone knows either from interest or by osmosis the the, the plot of of this particular. I mean, yeah, you could just talk honestly, about. Honestly, it would take us an hour to to <laughs> to kind of sum up the plot. It, Broad strokes. I, it's not impossible to follow, as some people like to say. It's a but it's it's complicated, mm-hmm. but it's you know when it comes down to it, it's just basically a lot of familiar stuff with a new vocabulary imposed on it. So basically, this family that is a royal family, sometime eight thousand years in the future, and they are being placed by an unseen emperor as a mission to go to a planet uh, that supplies natural resources and exploit it. And the prior exploiters are horrible and villainous. And this house of Atreides that's going to exploit the natural resources are honorable and noble and want to do the right things. But (laughs) because of their conditioning as uh, outlanders, that is Westerners. I mean, you know, the eco-fable aspect of this scenario is the spice equals oil Mm -hmm. and outlanders equal the West and the Fremen equal you know, the Middle East. And any kind of anonymous, indigenous <laughs> kind of kind of culture. Yeah. I mean, that was something that was interesting to me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like up in arms about it, but there was a way in which the, the movie is a bit frozen in time in terms of, given that a movie that like Black Panther coming out, it's kind of hard to come back to a kind of mythological, you know, style movie like this without having that in your hair. Like, well, um, Villeneuve has said that in the next part of the film, the, the character played by Zendaya right. will be more prominent, and that may redress the balance <laughs> relative to your remark about it being frozen in time. I mean, I understand what you mean by that, but because that role uh, is being played by a, a, a woman of color, and there will be more persons of color prominent, I think, in the second part. Not that they don't appear here, but they, you know, this is the story of the outlander. It definitely is that. Paul is the 
white messiah. I mean, it's not a white supremacist film by any means, but you can't escape the fact that he is, you know, and there's a couple of shots in there that look like they're out of Nicholas Ray's King of Kings, which, as you <laughs> may remember, at the time it came out, had a uh, had the nickname I was a teenage Jesus. You know, <laughs> Chalamet is teenage Jesus here, but he, he's a very pale teenage Jesus. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's inherent in the material. And again, the fact that Villeneuve didn't feel compelled to hmm. mess with that too much, although he did make one of the protagonists and the people who understand Arrakis best. Uh, changed from a um, a male in the book to a uh, a black female character mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that i think was another thing and i think that works i think that's smart yeah i mean there's there's even some of uh, a couple of lines of her dialogue you know or, or what someone observes of her of being kind of on two two cultures or two sides that that kind of double bind of, of being in the position she is the what is she called the judge of the change is yeah the judge um, of the change um so that's interesting um i don't this might be a futile question for a movie like this but what did you make of the performances or the the style of performances here? i thought the performances were, were good i thought chalamet you know who's often criticized for being callow i think his callowness works for him and it is a performance strategy because eventually he kind of shakes it off and some of the things that happen in the last third of the movie when he's becoming more tormented by these dreams of holy war, uh, he is convincingly, wouldn't say intimidating, but definitely unbalanced. And I thought he was excellent. I was actually really impressed by Jason Momoa, not because he was like especially brilliant, but because he is the least goofy I've ever seen him and actually plays this this warrior character who's a bit of a bro, um, <laughs> Duncan, Duncan Idaho. Yeah, he plays that character really, really well. And I thought everybody did, you know, from Charlotte Rampling as the Holy Mother to Iscar Isaac as the noble patriarchal duke. These aren't, you know, these aren't characters out of Proust. They don't have a lot of hidden depth. They're archetypes. Yeah. And so I think what the actors bring is appropriate. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm, one other thing I just m- make sure we touch upon is the, I mean, just the visual approach that Villeneuve takes. I have to say, there's a certain obscurity um, built into the look of the film, and I hope it's not just my eyes going. And I'm, that's obviously down to it being a desert planet, but it was interesting to me how much he went with that, and, and not in the sense of like the sort of fuzziness that I associate with, you know, post-digital action yeah. scenes, but just literally like they are on a planet where you can you know, barely see ahead. Even the dunes uh, didn't necessarily look so picturesque. You know, there was he likes working with a limited, a deliberately limited mm-hmm. palette, and that's yeah. one of the things, one of the many things that drove me crazy about his sci-fi film Arrival. That was like you sat through that thinking that you might have, did I get glaucoma all of a sudden? You know, <laughs> so this wasn't as extreme as that, but it's very, it's very in keeping with his his wanting to keep the palette limited and and that that was a feature of his Blade Runner film as well to a certain extent he likes that yellow you know he likes that dusty thing it's the villain of tan I think but then when he you know I kept wondering what if I was ever going to see a blue sky and I think once or twice that happened but when that yellow pops during one of the dream sequences it makes it that much Mm -hmm. stronger so Mm -hmm. I mean he's he knows what he's doing I wish he'd I wish he'd vary things a little more but these this is a choice with him and I think here it works because of how the desert planet Arrakis is. It's supposed to have that kind of intimidating 
sameness. Mm-hmm. And then that worm, yeah. good worm, good worm stuff. Good, good worm work. I like that. I like that good. This the good worm work there. Yeah, I like. I like the um, the spice machines. Yeah, too. they remind you Zan- giant zambonis. Yeah, those are. I mean, <laughs> very, very credible. Very. The production design is spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I don't know if this felt even um, even worse for for you. I just felt like you really did feel the heavy lifting of the exposition at the end. I, yeah. I, I'm, I was sort of racking my brains as to what exactly transpired in the last 45 minutes. But was that my imagination? Or was no, that... it's not your imagination. Okay. And it figures <laughs> in the book as well. You oh, know? Okay. Um, exposition, all caps. <laughs> but again, and that's where the cast helps. They're very compelling yes. performers yeah. and they kind of sell it. So, yeah, you yeah. Know. Is this the best of all possible dunes? I don't want to find out. How many dunes do you have to make to get to the best of all possible ones? I think this is this is as good as it's going to get, and I actually yeah. am interested in seeing what he does with the last third or the second half, depending on how you look at it. Well, I'm sure somewhere there is a a, a, a Excel spreadsheet for 10 years from now there is a dune uh, reboot, um, but we don't have to think about that right now. Well, happily, I mean, you know, the characters will age in that time. Where we pick up next is when the 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 ki- when Jessica's kid is about four years old, so uh, uh-huh. they have time. All right. Well, so yeah, that's Dune, and that's in the third day. Yeah, third day. It's out of it's out of the competition. Right. Uh, the first film I saw was the Almodovar picture, Madres yeah. Paralelas. What'd you make of that? Uh, you know, before I came out here, my wife and I watched Volver because um, we're going through the film collection. Uh, over and over alphabetically. So we'll hmm. go from A to Z in directors and then start again. Um, oh, that's great. So she picked this one. Uh, she, she, she does all the picking for our evening viewing. So uh, A is Alma Dovar, and she picked Volver, and uh, we watched that and really enjoyed it. And I said, you know, I was watching, and I was like, it's, the amazing thing about Alma Dovar's movies is that even if you're not, I mean, you should watch them with a full investment, but even if you're not watching them with a full investment or engagement, they're so easy to watch. His cinematic style, it's not just the design, it's the shots, it's the editing. Everything about his cinematic style has such a fluency that you just they're just eminently watchable, you know? And this one is um, is exactly like that, although it's a little less... I wouldn't say overstated, but it's a little less overtly stylized than a lot of his mm-hmm. films have been. I mean, at a certain point, you get to the the Penelope Cruz's character has had her baby, and she's working with a a housekeeper, and they're in the laundry room, and you say, "Oh yeah, that's a very Almodovar laundry room," you <laughs> right, know, yeah. and then it sort of clicks in. Um, but it's not as emphatic as it is in his last film, the. Uh, the short film The Human Voice with Tilda Swinton, which is like extreme stylization. No, I mean, th- this one, I mean, this sounds so dry to say this of one of his movies, but it's definitely more like thematically driven and and, yeah. and, and the movie, and it's, I guess it's true to the almost kind of clinical t- title of like Parallel Mothers. It's drawing parallels. And we should probably sketch out the plot a little. There's two plots and it's interesting. The movie starts off with Penelope Cruz's character, Janice, talking to a forensic anthropologist about exhuming some graves of some relatives in fr- of hers from way back in the Spanish Civil War who were killed by phalangists and never received a proper burial. And this forensic ar- archaeologist is an expert in that, but, you know, these things require funding. There's, you know, I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed. They discuss all this, and while they're discussing this, it's very clear that they have a, a sexual chemistry s- spark between them, and sure enough, they end up in bed. 
And I thought, well, okay, so all this business was just sort of like setting up the it's a MacGuffin to get them in bed and get her pregnant, and then she is in a hospital with a younger woman named Anna, who's a spectacular actor. Melena Smith. Melena Smith, fantastic work in there. But they have their babies at the same time, and then there are several Almodovar-esque plot twists. I'm very involved. I mean, it's you know, again, it's it's just one of those things where. You know when it's Almodovar that um, there are going to be twists. And the twists are very uh, typical of him, very kind of in keeping with, with old school melodramas. Mm-hmm. But then the thing that happens, and one thing that's really beautiful about this movie is that every character in it is essentially a good person. They do ill-advised things at certain points, but mm-hmm. they're all good people. This is a, you know, this is Al- Almodovar at a kind of a peak ideal Renoir kind of mood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and also, I think part of that is the temptation one has to kind of get into a, a dark mood and think the worst of another yeah. person. And that's totally understandable given, especially like the family dynamic between um, Anna and, and her mother, because yeah. um, she's barely out of her teens or yeah, still in yeah. her teens uh, when she's pregnant. And her mother is this traveling actress. Yeah, very kind of... I wouldn't say ruthlessly ambitious, but kind of like almost neurotically ambitious. She she wants to get her yeah, chance. Yeah. yeah, but you know maybe a little maybe a little cavalier, but not callous. And they all they all work it out. Everybody works it out. Mm-hmm. You know, people do extreme things. They change their phone numbers. They stop talking to people. But by the end of the movie, they work it out. And then the exhumation theme comes up again, and mm-hmm. it becomes a movie about what it's always been about which is coming to terms mm-hmm. you know coming to terms with the very very personal and very very intimate and sometimes tragic within that frame and then coming to terms with history history itself um world history history of your country history of what your country's done history of what was done in the name of your country these are not you know abstract ideas to anybody especially American citizens, uh, but certainly not Spanish uh, yeah. people either. So, and uh, Almodovar does not deal in that kind of what we might call, although we shouldn't really call it that. He doesn't really deal with that kind of politics at all. Right. But I think whatever compelled him to do that, I think he integrates it really beautifully with doing what he does best. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it's so natural. I mean, and the way into into that that history is just very personal, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, Penelope Cruz's character wants to figure out what happened in, in, her, in her town. And, and, you know, I like the detail. I think that her grandfather is a photographer and she's a photographer. Yeah. So, you know, she may be doing sort of fashion shoots, but... <laughs> and and there's a neat kind of callback where she's doing a shoot with this anthropologist she gets involved with and, and someone wants him to hold a skull yeah. for a Hamlet reference um, just to kind of and she's like I'm not going to do that yeah. um, and then it all comes back because that's ultimately what they'll be doing which is exhuming and it's not it's also not some kind of um, you know, bid to make sure the movie has some weight beside, you know, it, the melodramatic aspects. It's it's part and parcel with it. And as you said, it's all part of this unavoidable desire we pe- we as humans often have to not just come to terms, but also change history or change what is done. Yeah, I mean, the movie made me really happy and hopeful. Mm-hmm. When I came out, it, it was, you know, I, I flew out here on um, Monday evening and 
getting to JFK, checking in, do, you know, it took a lot of time to do all the things I needed to do. And going to the gate, I ran into some people, some colleagues I knew, and uh, sp- spent some time with them. And and uh, at the gate, there was a men's room, and I went and uh, you know to the men's room, and another colleague went to the men's room. And while we were in the men's room, this we heard this these shouts. This man was screaming obscenities. At um, first, he was doing it at one of the one of the people who was sweet, you know, mopping up the men's room. And then he came into the men's room. He was a young white guy. He was wearing an, some sort of, you know, branded sweatshirt and shorts. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, he looked bourgeois, you know, young bourgeois guy. And he started yelling at my friend who was washing his hands. You know, he just kept saying the same thing, which was, fuck you. Hmm. Uh, and then yelled at me, fuck you. Uh, he was clearly intox. He was clearly drunk, and I thought, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a recovering alcoholic, so I should have more compassion for my, for the sick and suffering. But at the moment, I just thought, geez, I hope this guy isn't on my flight. And as it turned out, he was, and um, it became this whole thing. He was going to Venice with a, a woman who was trying to like calm him down. And I was resentful of her watching her do that because I thought, don't he shouldn't be on the plane at all, and you're not going to be able to muzzle him. And if you do muzzle him enough that he behaves himself so that he can get on the plane, he's going to start tearing shit up on the plane, and it's an eight-hour flight. I don't want that. Now, as it happened, um, he was prevented from boarding the plane, and eventually they went off in a cart driven by the security people, and he had this sort of dazed look on his face, and she looked, she was crying. Then I felt very bad, and I felt really, really sad. You know, over the summer, I've lost a couple of relatives, including my dad, and I've been reading books about the meaning of life, including John Gray's Seven Types of Atheism, and uh, it's it's been a rough time. And, and when I saw all that happening, I just thought, what am I doing? Why am I what, – what am I doing? And then when I came to – when I finally got to the festival and I saw the movie, I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is a – a film about humanity and that talks to us about humanity mm. and that you can have a dialogue with about this. And this is worthwhile and this is worth celebrating. Yeah. So that's my, that's my endorsement of Alamo Dovar's <laughs> new film. No, I mean, and that, and that's, it really is, is a movie like that. And that's why I was, I mean, not that we have to talk about what other people have said about it, but I was a little disappointed by some reactions I saw to it, which I felt like work just going in expecting some particular yeah. Alamo Dovar template. That's the thing. I mean, he always makes quality films of a very particular quality. They're never below a certain level of quality, but he's doing different things, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Just like, just like the you know people people were upset didn't like the airline movie either. But that's right. <laughs> him having you know ha- having a having a gas, just having fun. Yeah. He's allowed to do that. He has such mastery. He can kind of do what he likes, and I think it speaks really well of him to be at the age he's at and have the energy he has and have the ambition he has mm-hmm. and have the sensitivity to be moved to start talking about this. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that is, yeah, especially pain and glory. I mean, it's just a whole, whole other level. Oh yeah. Well, I, ha- having talked about Dune and parallel mothers, um, I, I thought it might be interesting if we kind of veer into, into another direction of a movie that people probably don't know much about. I'm sure some people uh, do follow the filmmaker though. Uh, Ricky D'Ambrose, and his film is showing in the Biennale College. My boy, Ricky. Um, <laughs> and that's The Cathedral. 
the cathedral. I, I, you know, the Biennale College is 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 an amazing thing that not enough people know about. Yep. It's kind of like a cross between Project Greenlight and Sundance Labs without the uh, reality television component. Maybe they should do a reality television component of it because here's what it is. <laughs> Every year, the Biennale College sponsors three films. They take applications from almost 1,200, probably more by this point, 1,200 filmmakers a year apply, three get chosen. And those three filmmakers are given 150,000 euros and they then have 10 months to produce a feature to be shown at the next Biennale. So that's where that's where the potential for a reality television series comes in because that's pressure. Yeah, definitely. That's a lot of pressure. And, um, you know, you got you've, your film's funded, but you can't make it for any more money than we've given you, okay. and you have 10 months. Yeah. Yeah. So because the panel did not convene last year, but the films were made – this year, the panel, which also includes my good friend uh, Stephanie Zaharek and uh, the great Chris Vognar mm-hmm. uh, from Texas, uh, two great critics and a few people from the filmmaking side, we look at uh, these six films and we talk about you know, distribution, potential critical reception, uh, where these films can fit in with the, uh, the zeitgeist. You know, mm-hmm. One U.S. film that uh, was, was well-received the first year I was here was The Fits oh, and, yeah. uh-huh. and Ray Homer. And this year, the films are, are all outstanding. Um, La Tana, The Den, I think is spectacular. It's a, a boy meets girl in a rural uh, setting movie that feels familiar but goes to many unexpected places. Mm. My Father the Devil, incredible French-made film made about uh, African immigrants uh, mm-hmm. living in France and uh, their coming to terms with the past. A couple of really strong um, South American films, uh, including Al Oriente and uh, Nuestros Dias Más Felices. Mm-hmm. From Italy, uh, the, the, the La Santa Piccola, The Miracle Girl. And finally, from the United States, Ricky D'Ambrose, The Cathedral, yes. which is, well, it's Ricky's second feature, I think. He's made shorts, and he made a feature called uh, uh, Notes on an Appearance. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, it's funny, when I heard the announcement that Ricky had been one of the um, people awarded the film, I was a little, I was, I was delighted for him, because I know Ricky, and I've actually appeared in two of his films which is weird. <laughs> so I actually emailed him. I said, don't put me in your film, your Biennale College film, because it'll, <laughs> it'll be weird. It'll look weird. The people will see the film and I'm in it and then I'll be on the panel. It just doesn't look good. <laughs> he wrote me back and said, that's too bad. I, I had a part for you. I'm like, ah, damn. <laughs> uh, not that I, re- not that I, I mean, I'm, I'm not that into being in films. It's just something that happens. Get your SAG card. Uh. <laughs> you know, if I got my SAG card, that'd be one thing. I could get the insurance. But, you know, I've been in a film with Steven Soder, by, directed by Steven Soderbergh, that came about because um, my friend Brian Koppelman saw me on the street one day in 2008, lumbering like Jabba the Hutt, and said, uh, we have a part in our new movie that's kind of like the Harry Knowles of escort reviewers. Do you want to do it? 
I'm like, well, of course. When you put uh, it that way. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sign me right up. I mean, uh, you know, and I've, I've worked in films with my friend Preston Miller, and I've done a couple of things for, for Ricky, and I really don't know why they – I mean, I don't know. Um, but, Ricky, yeah, he had a part for me in this. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and having seen the movie, I think I know what it was, and I'm going to kick his ass when I see him. <laughs> um, but it's a fantastic movie. It's, it's interesting because Ricky has um, – Ricky's method is very influenced by Straub and Houillet, mm-hmm. by Bresson and by Godard. He has this perspective in his films that appears rather dry and detached. There's usually a narrator, and the narrator describes things in a very even tone of voice. There's not a lot of elaborate behavior or, you know, what we call action in his films. And that's the case here. Certainly the style is very in keeping with what he usually does. But it became clear that this is a very autobiographical film. It's about some very painful circumstances in a person's life. And it builds this power that for as much as it maintains that very analytical spare tone, it is very moving. Very moving Mm -hmm. indeed. I think it vaults him from a filmmaker who's clearly very interesting and very talented i think this vaults him into like major american filmmaker territory um so i couldn't be more pleased with it yeah it's i agree in terms of moving from one feature to the next i mean maybe there was an aspect of game playing a little bit in the first feature and this one it really feels more his own voice in a way um but i mean i think maybe it might help to to talk a bit about that it sort of has a complex family explosion that begins the movie they're talking about a family in uh, long island and the various relatives and in-laws and internecine disputes mm-hmm. uh indifference to aging relatives personal financial malfeasance and debt richard is is the father and he's played by brian darcy james and he's fantastic um you know he's going to be in trouble right off the bat because it starts off in the early 80s, I think, and he runs a printing business. So you know he's screwed. <laughs> he's completely screwed. Once digital printing comes along, whatever whatever rut he's in at that time is only going to get worse. And sure enough, yeah. that turns out to be the case. But he you know, he borrows from his friends. He uh, meets a woman uh, while on a Caribbean vacation. They get married. They have a kid. This kid um, is their focus and he's seen at varying stages. The thing about this movie also, the logistics of it must have been really challenging because the character of Jesse, who I think is the stand-in for the director, it goes from you know the age of three to the age of about 18 mm-hmm. and various stages in between. And the actors that are cast are absolutely physically credible in terms of... Yeah of uh how they maintain this consistent look yeah so um yeah it, it moves really i won't say smoothly because that's not what it's going yeah no for. it's very bumpy because all yeah. the you know all the ups and downs of this family are like yeah the, and, and and that's an interesting way about how it how the drama works in this movie because it's not the sort of thing where you always are seeing the outburst um every single time sometimes you're just seeing you know this this father character just kind of again just bang his head against the wall effectively just kind of going through the same like <laughs> emotional cul-de-sacs with with his family members and i just really liked what the movie captures about this particular way that family 
disagreements play out and the kind of stonewalling that goes on. And it's not even always like really like this passionate drama. It's really just like, no, I'm shutting this down. No, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. It's fascinating to see uh, this kind of Bressonian approach applied to, you know, suburban American life, but right. it actually works quite well. I agree. Um, it doesn't feel stagey, but it feels like these not charge moments, but like mm-hmm. uh, decharge de- moments, these draining moments yeah. enacted in a very spare yeah. style that kind of just leaves you empty, you know? <laughs> yeah. And is it shot on 16? I think, yeah. 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 He, uh, Ricky, I, I, I emailed him after I saw it and say how much I liked it. And he said uh, he was very happy I saw it projected. That was important to him. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about how it sets the time is that it punctuates it with um, sometimes archival footage. Sometimes and traumatic archival Traumatic footage. archival footage that, that I have to say is a little bit, I, I imagine will be lost in a lot of viewers because, for example, there's footage of the World Trade Center. The but first I, World Trade Center bombing. Exactly, the first World Trade Center bombing, which if you're seeing it, it would take you a beat to figure out, oh, wait, that's not, you know, September 11th. Yeah. Um, and there are other little things like that that are. And one of his last short, "The Sky Is Clear and Blue Today," is explicitly about 9/11. Mm-hmm. He's got a real 9/11 thing. <laughs> but I mean, 9/11 is alluded to here, but they don't show a lot of footage. Yeah. Instead, they go to the blackout of 2003, right. which is fascinating. He's got a lot of George uh, W. But he's got George Bush, the first George Bush. He's got the second George Bush, and he's got Bill Clinton in there a bit. He does beautiful things with archival footage, not just of news stuff, but of commercials and things like that. That was a feature, uh, that was not featured so much in Notes on an Appearance. What he did in Notes on an Appearance was he created this world of this fictionalized writer, and he's very good with detail. Mm -hmm. Like he created these books, these web pages, these texts by this uh, radical philosopher who was... uh, the subject of, I think, a thesis by the person who oh, disappears. Right. And they all look incredibly like a real thing to the extent that when I got out, I looked up this guy and I realized, no, he's not a real guy. He's an invention. He's a hmm. he's a kind of a Gil Delusian invention of Rick's um, that you know becomes this sort of fulcrum for the philosophical themes underpinning this story of these, you know, bohemian academic hipster Brooklynites. Yeah. Uh, whereas here it's, I think, almost all authentic archival footage and uh, really uh, he must have spent an awful lot of time researching it and getting it together and, and it fits in really beautifully. Yeah, and, and left left in its kind of native, you know, video, you know, pre-digital video state, um, uh, which, which has, I don't know, a certain quality to it that immediately just takes takes you back to, to, the, to the moment. It seems like an oblique observation, but it's a really pointed observation on how we're shaped by these events, mm-hmm. even though none of the actual scenes of the fa- dysfunctional family allude to them at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and in that sense, it is kind of the texture of childhood memory, which is yeah. th- those things are kind of the background texture or, or you remember these events, but they're not like fleshed out in any totally meaningful way if, if yeah. you weren't directly impacted. But it's by very much about memory, for yeah. sure. The whole yeah. movie ends on a memory. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's that's the cathedral, which I, I, I gather will, you know, uh, be eventually be making its way. I say this based on nothing, but I, I can't imagine this movie not uh, having um, people who want to screen it in, in New York, especially. And I guess 
uh, we can maybe cover one or two more films just in, in brief. Yeah, sure. Well, I was impressed by The Card Counter, for sure. Yeah. That's another film about humanity. It's a little <laughs> more, uh, somewhat more bleak than uh, Parallel Mothers, although Parallel Mothers certainly has its bleak side because of the stuff it's dealing with. And But again, it's another, it's a new Paul Schrader film. And Sometimes when you hear about a Schrader film and you read about its themes, you think, oh, again? <laughs> and yet, for all that, I think this film brings a, a, new, a new slant, a new stress to his Man Sits at a Table film, mm-hmm. uh, the, existential, uh, the existential loner, the, the Travis Bickle, the, uh, the light sleeper, uh, American mm-hmm. gigolo figure, the first reformed figure, you know, set in the world of poker, but less interested in the world of poker than uh, it initially lets on. You know, mm-hmm. that's another, that's one difference. Whereas, you know, for American Gigolo, there was some investment in looking at the world of prostitution. And for Light Sleeper, you know, drug dealing is, you know, part of New York culture. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the ecological alarms of First Reformed are stronger now than they were then. And even though clearly Schrader did his research learning about gambling, yeah. <laughs> getting kicked out of online poker rooms, but doing other things too, he's clearly done his homework, but once the movie is finished with poker it's finished with poker uh and it becomes something very different and you realize that you know it it does a lot of funny funny things to show that it's not a you know it's not a gambling movie there's a little joke about nicknames at the beginning that kind of tips you off it's like yeah no you're you're thinking of the wrong movie right he literally says you're thinking of the wrong movie yeah so i mean that's the thing about schrader is that schrader is um you know Schrader's known for tackling pretty substantial themes, and uh, he can do. He has humor about it, which is which is good. Yeah, and, uh, it's a beautiful, beautifully performed film. Oscar Isaac is spectacular. Ty Sh- Sheridan's really good, and Tiffany Haddish is a, a really good underplayer. She's a very understated character. Yeah, yeah, which which I I also like because I feel like anytime she appears on screen now, people always expecting what's the outrageous thing she's going to do or. Uh, but but here it's like she's quiet yeah she's really quiet and it works she makes it work yeah which in in a way i feel like she arrives on screen and you feel like oh i understand you know she's able to make you understand who this person is oh very much um right right away and and what she plays is almost like a manager agent yeah sort of a bankroller for uh for traveling poker players connecting people with with backer backing organizations and that's who knew i mean now you do know (laughs) yes so yeah, so that's the card counter. Uh, Paul Schrader's newest film. I also realized the documentary. Did you watch that documentary about the cannibal holocaust? Yeah, I watched the the uh, Rosso uh, Inferno Rosso, the yeah. the extreme road of Joe D'Amato. It, what was the line from that old Talking Head song? Uh, <laughs> had a lot of fun. Could have been a lot better. I mean, it's a really well done <laughs> documentary. It's only seventy minutes long, and it's about this. Uh, Italian filmmaker who he went by the screen name Joe D'Amato he was he was one of those guys who who like Jess Franco just basically lived to shoot mm. and this actually got him in a lot of trouble Jess Franco I remember interviewing Christopher Lee who appeared in some Jess Franco films in the 70s uh, possibly against his will and uh, <laughs> when he when I brought up Jess Franco he said not an untalented man, by the way, which is a, a very interesting kind of 
Christopher Lee backhanded compliment. But Jess Franco just, you know, loved the act of shooting so much that, you know, that's his filmography. And also weird sexual preoccupations, you know, and loving shooting film. That's Jess Franco. You know, D'Amato was an Italian cinematographer who was an assistant to Renoir, was an assistant Mm. to Vittorio De Sica, and he just was addicted to shooting. And he started a film company called Film Mirage, or Film I Rage, depending on how you want to look at it or (laughs) pronounce it. And he started making, uh, you know, very low-budget kind of thrillers. And then he started making gore films then he started making porno films Hmm. which he didn't like doing but the ups and downs of the company were such that he um at the end of his life had was sort of porn films are the movies where you can spend the least amount of money and make the most profit so he needed to literally bail out his his company Hmm. but a lot of these films are are pretty well regarded among extreme horror fanatics Hmm. one of the people who's on screen a lot is Eli Roth, who praises okay. these films and, you know, the cannibal stuff, uh, you know, porno holocaust, these titles like that. You know, and um, it could have gone deeper, frankly. You know, I, I, you know, Eli mm. Roth's enthusiasm is not exactly what you'd call infectious. And, you know, <laughs> I know uh, I'm, I'm thinking Tim Lucas is right here. You can talk to Tim Lucas, oh, yeah. the former sure. editor of Video Watchdog, Watchdog. who's an expert on, on this stuff you know, and, uh, you know, would be drier and more. They talked to a, a, a guy from the Cinematheque Francaise mm. named Rougier, who's a little um, disproportionate in his uh, assessments of, of D'Amato, mm-hmm. let's say. Because there's no... <sighs> the thread you want in an auteur, a, a phrase I use less and less because it's sort of been abused out of all proportion, but... The thread you want in an auteur is not the thread you get with Joe D'Amato's work. Mm. It's just not there. There's a lot of things that are striking and interesting. But then, you know, you'll have uh, the account of the porno days and they'll do, the filmmakers will do this like 45, 60, 75 second stills montage of red tinted, almost, you know, hardcore stills from the porno movies. And I'm thinking... You know, the guy who starred in these movies, Rocco Sifredi, who's a fair, mm. who has porn stars go, is relatively well known in the realms outside of porn, partially because of his work with Catherine, Catherine Brulat. Yeah. Like, again, why didn't you talk to Rocco Sifredi? Right, right. Um, so, yes, and it's only 70 minutes. You could, you know, so uh, it had a lot of that kind of weird padding. Mm-hmm. I mean, the images are what they are. They're sensationalistic images, but I... I could watch the movies if I want. I, I know where to get them elsewhere. Right, right, you know, yeah. Uh, only not in this particular montage. So mm. it was worthwhile. Yeah. It came with a really obnoxious uh, phone video introduction from Nicholas Winding Refn. <laughs> they, they, they just the play the audio. The point of art is to be polarizing. Yeah, that's it. You got it. You nailed <laughs> it, Nick. Um, so let me say, Joe D'Amato is unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I mean, it's funny, these, the way stuff goes in, in, in film enthusiasm, this sort of mutation into what have you. I mean, I, I remember, you know, I had reviewed The Neon Demon in the Times. Right. And I talked about, I thought you know, Nicholas 
that Reffin kind of comes off as a 12-year-old who really wants to shock his parents. Mm. Uh, and when I came to Cannes, when I came to Lido that year, uh, wh- whatever the year of Neon Demon was, um, I, <laughs> I'm waiting with Dave Kerr, the former New York Times writer and now a curator at uh, MoMA, Yes, 2016, and we're waiting for a water taxi to take us to the Excelsior. And there's a slim European guy with Prada eyeglasses standing on the dock, and all three of us get into the boat. And um, <laughs> you know, he's he wants to chat. He's like, he asked Dave, you know, what he's bringing, and he was bringing a John Ford film called The Brat, which was fantastic. And uh, this guy said, well, I'm coming here with the restoration of Dawn of the Dead. And I'm like, oh, my, it's Nicholas Winding Refn. (laughs) And good for him for doing that restoration of Dawn of the Dead, Mm -hmm. by the way, because it is really great. But I'm like, I'm not sure exactly how to introduce myself. (laughs) So I said my name was Glenn, and I said that I wrote for RogerEbert.com. And we didn't talk about the Neon Demon. But I did talk to him about he had just bought the film vault of something weird video. Because oh, right. Mike Vrainy, the uh-huh. founder of Something Weird Video, had died, and he bought his entire film vault, a lot of which contained these weird 1950s and 60s, what they call them, roughies. These exploitation films right. made in New York where, like, boy gangs, like, kidnap a woman, beat her up. Some of these films featuring cameos by people like Jake LaMotta, this, that, and the other thing. He had no idea what their provenance was. And I, amusingly enough, knew exactly where they came from because Sam Lake, the producer of those films, way back in 1980, when my best friend graduated from NYU film school, the first job he got was working at a place called Quality X Video on 44th Street Hmm. doing VHS dupes of porno films Hmm. because that was happening. (laughs) something you could do and this guy sam lake who had been a producer of grindhouse pictures in the 50s and 60s Hmm. with arthur morowitz came upon the brilliant idea in the 70s of booking deep throat at the world theater they made a fortune with that so sam went into porn permanently and he decided now that the 80s were coming he wanted to take advantage of this home video thing right so my friend was working for sam lake the day that john the day after john lennon got shot Sam Lake was reminded of something. He went into his office and he dictated a letter to Yoko Ono saying, I'm sorry for your loss. By the way, I happen to be in possession of a negative of the film called The Devil's Bed or something that was made by Michael and Roberta Finlay and was uh, a roughie in which Yoko acted as a Japanese college student who's kidnapped and beaten and runs around upstate New York forest in her underwear and I would be happy to sell you this negative for $50,000. And Sam Lake's secretary refused to type it, to her credit. And at that, he just sort of gave up. He kept, the dream was killed. And that film later actually came out on Something Weird Video because wow. Mike Vrainy got Sam Lake's vault. Okay. So I was very helpful to Nick Reffing, I think. And these films were subsequently part of the basis of what became his bizarre Hmm. streaming website which is a bizarre streaming website right wow well i don't know how we're gonna we're gonna top that reference you know reference curatorial stuff is i think a lot more commendable than his actual films you know putting out a huge coffee table edition of the andy milligan biography the ghastly one it was a really ballsy move and i own that i paid for it 
Yeah. Because yeah. I was thinking, I was actually thinking of pitching the t- This weird thing is happening in home video where, and physical media where like the worst, I mean, let me dial right. that back and say not worst because people will say, well, you're a Philistine for saying that. But filmmakers considered the worst in the world are getting right. these huge deluxe DVD box sets. Andy Milligan, Al Adamson, who I knew slightly, a very nice fellow. And I thought, well, this might be something for a critic's notebook. And then I thought, no. <laughs> Better not. Because <laughs> I do that every now and then. I get an idea and I think about it. And then I say, no. I mean, you know, it's weird. I'm very, I'm not a very ambitious person. <laughs> you know, when I was 25, I decided I wanted to, when I was 23, I said, I want to write for Robert Criscow on The Village Voice. And then a year later I did. And then I was like, okay, <laughs> what good. do I do now? And that's, here I am. And here you are on, <laughs> on the last thing I saw. Um, I think we've spanned the, some huge expanse of cinema going from Dune to Parallel Mothers to Cathedral. You know, it's a thing, to, right? We to really, all of it. It's been a journey. It's been I a like journey. Say. And I've, been, I've had a lot of fun talking to you, and I hope everybody enjoys this. Absolutely. No, it was wonderful speaking with you, too. And yeah, and off we go to more movies. Thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>